You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church Midtown. What is the church supposed to look like? The book of Titus shows us what it means to be changed people living together in peace. Welcome to our sermon series, This Beautiful Church, Seeing and Being the People of God. Peace be with you. Hey, for those of you who uh, may be first-time guests, my name is Jamal, and I am uh, one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege tonight of preaching God's Word to you. And uh, we are thrilled that you would come this evening to uh, just fellowship with us, and I pray that a, a word has been sung and or will be preached that will enrich your life in Christ Jesus. So today we're going to want to do something a little different than normal. Normally we have someone read the text uh, just before I preach, but today I want to introduce uh, to some of you an app called Streetlights. And it is an app in which you can listen to the Word of God being read back to you over some really cool like urban jazz beats. And so I just want to encourage you guys. We've been talking about intaking the Word of God, and there's many different ways to do this. This is one way that I often listen to the Bible while I walk or uh, do dishes or, or do things around the house. So we're going to allow that to be read to us. They also have it, in, as Johnny Barahona would say, in heaven's language in Spanish. So uh, you can also listen to this in Spanish as well. Titus chapter 2, promote right teaching. As for you, Titus, promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. Teach the older men to exercise self-control, to be worthy of respect, and to live wisely. They must have sound faith and be filled with love and patience. Similarly, teach the older women to live in a way that honors God. They must not slander others or be happy drinkers. Instead, they should teach others what is good. These older women must train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to live wisely and be pure, to work in their homes, to do good, and to be submissive to their husbands. Then they will not bring shame on the word of God. In the same way, encourage the young men to live wisely, and you yourself must be an example to them by doing good works of and seriousness of your teaching. Teach the truth so that your teaching can't be criticized. Then those who oppose us will be ashamed and have nothing bad to say about us. Slaves must also obey their masters and do their best to please them. They must not talk back or steal, but must show themselves to be entirely trustworthy and good. Then they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive in every way. For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. And we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God, while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, and to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. You must teach these things and encourage the believers to do them. You have the authority to correct them when necessary, so don't let anyone disregard what you say. Pray with me. Uh, Father, thank you so much for uh, your word. Thank you for uh, 
these, your people who are gathered here, uh, created in your image, uh, ready to engage you and to learn more about you. And I pray that no matter uh, where each person is today, uh, that you would have something for them. I pray that the word that is preached, that it would fall on a fertile soil so that it can produce and bear fruit. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my Redeemer. In the matchless, wonderful name of Jesus Christ, we do pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it is so good to see you all. I was so proud of our church and this morning uh, following Derby, uh, a Louisville holiday, a Kentucky holiday. Uh, people showed up and they were ready to worship the Lord today. And you all are ready to worship the Lord despite uh, probably eating well and just having a, a lazy uh, Saturday. So it's good to, to see you here. Now, Derby for me um, has been a, a progressive kind of uh, uh, thing, right? It's, it's been something I've kind of come to love and to appreciate. I'm not from Louisville originally. I'm born and raised in Chicago and I came from Michigan, went to Michigan State University uh, before I came here to Louisville, Kentucky. And it took me probably about five years to realize that Derby was a big deal, right? And for the first five years, it's like it would just kind of sneak up on me. And I'm like, man, everybody's all dressed up. Everybody's having a good time. I forgot to plan again. And eventually, as each year went around, I began to appreciate it more and more. And as Louisville became my home and my city, it's something like all of you that I look forward to. Um, so the culture of Louisville has begun to uh, impact me. You know, someone once said that culture uh, becomes culture uh, when we uh, teach something, when we tolerate something, and when we celebrate something. Um, oftentimes, if we want to create culture, that's what you do, you teach it, you tolerate, and then you celebrate. Well, the Apostle Paul in the book of Titus is writing to his son in the ministry named Titus. And he is trying to create a, a new culture for those who are Christians living on the Mediterranean island of Crete. Crete is a beautiful place with people who are created in the image of God, but there are some things about Crete's culture that is ugly because people are not following the way of Christ, but rather they are following the way of or the Cretan way. So Paul is writing Titus after spending time with Titus in Crete, and he's saying, listen, I believe that the Lord wants to do something amid Crete. I believe that the Lord wants to save some people. I believe that a movement is going to happen. And so what I want you to do is I want you to put in order what is out of order in the churches that we have begun to, uh, to plant, to start. And so you all know this, but in the first uh, part of the series in Titus chapter one, uh, we looked at uh, in order for these churches to become beautiful churches, uh, Paul invites them to have a, live with a beautiful confidence, to place their faith and hope in Jesus, to commit themselves to, to knowledge so that they may grow in godliness. And placing their hope and trust in Jesus is fixing their mind on the fact that God is a God who cannot lie. Unlike Cretans 
He is not manipulative. He is not deceptive. And then on the second sermon, we looked at um, not only if we're going to be a, a beautiful church, must we have beautiful confidence, but we looked at a beautiful church requires beautiful leadership and that a church, just like any organization, um, as a living organism, will only go as far as the leaders are mature. And so Paul said, listen, uh, Titus, I need you to find these type of men to elder or to pastor the church. And last week, we looked at the type of men that he were looking for. And in essence, it was men of character, men who can manage their own home, who were loving and hospitable and good. And today, Paul is going to say, now, just as we have these men who have these certain ethics, the certain code of living, the Christians in Crete must have a similar code of living. Because the Christians in Crete, if we are going to impact this island, we have to be seen as a beautiful community that is filled with beautiful relationships. And the way we do life together should be countercultural than the way that Cretans experience life. And that's what I want to talk about uh, today is a beautiful community. And what it looks like for us to be a countercultural people that lives Christ's way and not the Cretan way. And there's three things that I want to point us to in this text if we are going to be a beautiful community. And the first is this, is that a beautiful community is grounded in a people who are teachable. And second is a beautiful community are those who are, are cultivating living as servants. And then third, we're going to look at how as a beautiful community, we have to commit ourselves to being pupils of God's grace. So three quick buckets that I want to look at uh, with the sermon, uh, what it looks like to be teachable, what it looks like to be servants, and then finally, what it looks like to be students of the grace of God. And here's why this is important. Because if we as sojourners, our vision is to fill up our city with gritty disciple makers. If we as sojourners are going to be disciples who make disciples like Jesus tells us to in Matthew chapter 28, um, we need to do that in community and having a community that attracts people in. And so Paul here says a lot. There's so much in these verses. Um, and I'm not going to get into the weeds of everything, but I do want to start by, by showing this theme of, of teachability. That Christians are those who are learners. Constantly, as Paul is writing, uh, Titus, his true son in the ministry, who was a, a minister himself, who has done some great things uh, for the Lord, who was a leader. But Titus is still teachable. And Paul is writing Titus to teach him how to shepherd the flock that is in Crete. And over and over, he uses terms that invite uh, Titus to take on the, uh, the, the role of teacher and those who are uh, listening and those who are in the churches of Crete to take on the world of learner. So, for example, in chapter two, verse one, but you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. So proclaim. Later on in verse three, they are to teach what is good. Verse four, so they may encourage the young. 
Verse 6, in the same way, encourage the young men. Later on in uh, verse 6, in your teaching. Verse 8, your message is to be sound above reproach. Verse 12, instructing us. Verse 15, proclaim these things. Paul is encouraging Titus to take on and to step into his calling as a teacher. And he's saying every demographic in the church, whether you're an older man or a younger man, an older woman or a younger woman, you must commit to being a learner and being teachable. Now, there's some weird things that happens with this text. And there are some denominations that create really weird cultures in the church by looking at Titus chapter 2. And sometimes this happens because we read what Paul says in Titus chapter 2, or people read it, and they make like rules about it, okay? And we're going to talk about some of those things here. But what I want us to understand is that Paul is helping Titus to shepherd people that he knows, And he's writing a letter after having lived amongst the Cretans. And he's saying, listen, Titus, I know our people. Here's how I want you to encourage them. Tell the older men this. Well, Titus is not saying that every older man everywhere um, has these problems or these temptations. Tell the younger woman this. Right. He's not saying that every single younger woman, every single demographic is struggling with this. But he's saying in general, here is how you instruct them. And it's possible that what he is doing is going against Cretan culture. Remember, in chapter one, verse 12, Paul critiques Cretan culture by using one of their own prophets. One of their very own prophets said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts and lazy gluttons. So this is the culture of Crete. It was a very loose culture. YOLO. You only live once. Just live big. Go out. Be about yourself. Right. And Paul is pushing against that culture, saying, no, there is a Christian ethic. There is a Christian way of living. We, we as Christians, don't live once. We live. We have eternal life promised to us. And in light of eternity, here is what I want you to do. And so we're going to, uh, I'm just going to show you, for example, the type of things that Paul is saying by first looking at uh, older men here. When he says older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible and sound in the faith, love and endurance. And again, we don't know exactly why these are the things Paul focuses on um, for because when he comes to younger men, he just says younger men need to be self-controlled in everything. Right. And there's something about the younger men at Crete and maybe younger men in general. What Paul says, what I just need you to focus on is self-control in everything, self-control in your ambitions Self-control uh, in your speech, uh, self-control in your consumption of, of good things, self-control with your time and how you spend it, uh, self-control with your exercise, like self-control in everything, right? But with the older man, he gives all these different things. And here is my guess. My guess is, is that these older men are at a point in their life in Crete within the culture where when the older men get older, they probably get more cynical. Um, They probably say, I've done all the work that I um, was supposed to do, and now I get to uh, do whatever I want to do, say what I want to say, and kind of look down upon this next generation. 
And Paul is saying, no, in a church, there is a different way. Jesus calls you older men to continue to grow. And these younger men need to see an example of manhood, even as you age, that challenges them. So he says, I want you to be self-controlled. Don't demand people's respect, but rather live worthy of respect. Be sensible. Uh, don't go on your, uh, your kind of rants or follow conspiracy theories or whatever it is. Be sensible. Be sound in the faith. Love. As you get older, uh, it's not an excuse to be less loving, right? And endure. And so Paul is going to do that with each of these uh, different categories, For the older women, he's going to say in the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderous, not slaves to excessive drinking. They are to teach what is good. And it's possible that the older women in Cretan culture um, were irreverent. It's possible that they retired and they sat around and they gossiped and they drank and they got loose and they said things that they couldn't take back. And Paul is saying for Christian older women, here is what Christ wants you to do. Here is how he wants you to look. And when we get to the next section, and we're going to deal with that mostly in our next point, but I want you to see what Paul tells younger women in verse four. He says, teach what is good, older women to the younger women, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind, and submission to their husbands. Now, for these younger women and younger wives of all generations, these are qualities that all women, married or single, should aspire to. In fact, all of these qualities that Paul is telling everyone to aspire to are really what we call the fruit of the Spirit. But specifically, he's challenging these younger women. And what has happened, though, is people have read this and they've built this culture within some denominations, Southern Baptist, <laughs> and they, um, they've built this culture where it's a stigma for women to work outside of the home. And if a woman is gifted and called to be out the house, um, it's oppressive. And, and men kind of think that to, to be a man of the house is to be the only one working, and the wife is just to be tucked away in the kitchen and doing all the chores of, of the, the home. And that is not what Paul is teaching here. I think in doing that, you are actually taking your modern understanding of, of whatever or the way you were raised or the way you understand uh, relationships between uh, men and women, and you're kind of infusing that in here. And the reason I say that is because in Greco-Roman world, as well as the Jewish world, we're seeing this in the Old Testament, oftentimes women worked from the home and they had businesses, Right. And so I think what Paul is saying is that as you pursue what you are called to do, if you have a business, make sure you are not neglecting home. Paul is telling these younger, older women, teach them how in the midst of their work at home, Proverbs 31 woman, she's working at home, she's creating things, she's selling things in the market, in the midst of that, to not neglect their first call, which is to love their husbands and to take care of their children. And to make sure everything at home is in order. See the difference there? So Paul here is saying everyone needs to be teachable. 
And he is inviting a young pastor by the name of Titus to step into his call as a pastor, even though he's not as old as the older men, but to instruct them in sound teaching. A lot of times we think about sound teaching or sound doctrine. We often only think about orthodoxy, right? Uh, We often think about the trinity or soteriology, how you're saved, or or the works of uh, ecclesiology, the way that the, the, the church works, right? But Paul says sound teaching is not just orthodoxy, but it's orthopraxy. It's how we put our our faith into action. Teach these things. Teach Christian ethics. Teach Christian virtue. Teach what it looks like to live on the ground for Christ in a Cretan world. And here's my word to us at Sojourn. God has called all of us to be teachable. All of us have to constantly cultivate a heart where we are willing to learn from others. And a healthy, beautiful community is a community where all of these relationships are are sharpening each other and working and teaching each other. A beautiful church is where an older man can sit down with a younger man and begin to tell him about what he's experienced in life and and teach him from the word, as well as as he takes on that uh, role as teacher, being humble enough to continue to learn from a younger man as well as he shares what the Lord is teaching him. And for our younger people in this church, I want us to go counter-cultural because our culture has gotten weird and it seems to be getting weirder where um, those who are more seasoned and who have been through things in life, it seems like their, 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 uh, their life experience is valued less. It seems like sometimes in our generation, um, we think that because we have uh, Google or Siri uh, to uh, answer a a question for us at at our fingertip or with our voice, um, that we know all that we need to know. And I'm telling you, there's some things that Google and Siri cannot teach you. You need an older, wise person to look you in the eye sometimes and to tell you, baby, it's going to be all right. I've been in a place where things seem tight. I've been in a place where I was hopeless. I've been in a place where I wasn't sure what God wanted me to do. I've been through some times of spiritual drought, but everything is going to be okay. We need those relationships, those intergenerational relationships. And for my older uh, men and women, I really want to encourage you to not coast into heaven but to crash into heaven so that when you make it there, you can scream, oh, what a ride. I want to encourage you to not use the the later years of your life to kind of vacation and to to seek uh, maximum ease. Yes, you worked hard, enjoyed the fruit of your labor and enjoy the freedom of your schedule, but know that God wants to use you to pour into someone else's life. There are people in our church who need hope. There are people in our city who need the wisdom that you have. You may say, well, I made so many mistakes, Pastor Jamal. If I could go back and relive and do it different, then I would. Well, tell them that. 
Tell them what you would have done. Tell them what you learned from your lessons because a loss is not a loss until you haven't learned from it. When you learn from a loss and when you give it over to Jesus, it's not a loss. It's God working all things together for the good of those who love the Lord and who are called according to his purpose. Eugene Peterson in his uh, biography that was recently written uh, about him called A Burning in My Bones, uh, written by Wynne Collier, has a beautiful story. He is one of my spiritual heroes. I mean, uh, the brother is just, just profound in a very simple, clear way. Um, the way he had pastored one congregation for so many years and with such a, a slowness and, and careful attentiveness to his flock is, is something that I aspire to. So this guy who's a big author, uh, the one who wrote uh, the message uh, uh, translation, um, tells a story about how he first got discipled and how he was on fire for Jesus. And he, even though he was on fire for Jesus, he felt like he was missing something and he needed someone to walk with him. So he went to um, his church and to a younger pastor who was 30, who was well-spoken, a good preacher. And he uh, went to this pastor to be poured into a disciple. He said, in the first two times that we met, all the pastor wanted to talk about was, uh, was sex. And he's like, as a young man, I'm like, cool, I can learn about sex and self-control, but there's more that I need. And after two meetings and only uh, talking about sex and not having this pastor be curious about who he is or where he was, he said he couldn't go back. So then he uh, is talking to his mother and his mother says, you need to go and spend time with, I believe it's Mr. Norm. Mr. Norm was a man who really loved Jesus, who suffered a horrible accident and was uh, paralyzed, but he suffered well. Jesus oozed off of him. And he went to Mr. Norm, known all throughout his little city for loving Jesus. And he said, Mr. Norm bored me to death because the whole time he wasn't curious. All he did was just read and try to teach me the Bible. And he just wasn't very good at it. So he went uh, back to his mother and he talked to her. And she says, you know what? You need to meet Mr. Reuben. Mr. Reuben was a more seasoned barley man, had a wild beard, was uh, had no formal education and was known for just tinkering with things and fixing things. Would often come down to the church and spend most of his time in the basement just refurbishing things. And he said, I was scared to see Mr. Reuben because he was so tough and I was kind of emotional. I thought he would just tell me to man up the whole time. But he said, I went to spend time with Mr. Reuben and Mr. Reuben, listen to this. He said, he looked at me with wonderment. He approached me with such a profound curiosity. He cared about me and asked questions. And every Thursday was the highlight of my week. And he taught me to love Jesus more. Years later, when Mr. Reuben was in the hospital on his deathbed, he called Mr. Reuben just to say thank you. And he said, Mr. Reuben cried and said, wait a minute, God used me to help shape you? He's like, no one ever came to me for anything other than to fix things. And you mean to tell me that those Thursday mornings made you look more like Jesus? And I said that to say this. For some of you, you really need to hear this, whether you're young or old. God has saved you, shaped you, given you a particular story, particular experiences. 
so that you, who you are and how he has made you can be poured out to others. And all he wants you to do is to step out on faith and live this Christian life, trusting in Jesus in a way that allows you to be real and vulnerable with people and to believe that God is impacting other people through you. What's amazing about this is that it teaches what we've been teaching about discipleship. And it's this heroic Christianity um, is not the big stage, the big lights and the big moments. Heroic Christianity is being faithful in the mundane and trusting that God can use you where you are. Paul is saying if Crete is going to be impacted by the gospel, it's going to be impacted by the gospel because older men and older women, younger men and younger women, and you, Titus, you are living with a sense of wonderment, knowing that the gospel can can spread and impact people. It's because you are living as a vessel, as a conduit, allowing God to be moved through you. Which brings us to our second point. <laughs> First point wasn't supposed to be that long. <laughs> is this beautiful community is also built on, uh, it happens when we uh, cultivate a heart or lifestyle of servants. I'm going to kind of pinpoint this one a little bit. In order for the church to impact the world, uh, we have to look like Jesus, we're called to pursue Christ's likeness. That's all it means to be a Christian, is to look at Jesus' life, read the Gospels, look at his life, and trust in him with, with all of your heart, to the, and just to follow after his way, to follow after his steps. And if you do that, if you read the Gospels and you learn about Jesus and you read the Bible, what you will see is that though Jesus was the king of the universe, when he came to this earth, he was the chief servant. Though he was the leading rabbi, though he had hundreds and thousands of people following him, though he can heal lepers and open the eyes of the blind, though he could do all of these things, he was still willing to get on a knee and wash his disciples' feet, take on the posture of a slave. And even more so, though he was fully God and equal to God, he submitted himself to the point of death, yes, even death on the cross. And the way in which we experience a beautiful life-giving community that inspires people around us is when we live into our identity as servants. And one of the ways, two ways that we do that. One, if you look through this text, the theme in each of these categories and most of them explicitly, but some of them uses different words, is self-control. In order to be a faithful servant of Jesus, you have to cultivate self-control. Now, why does Paul say self-control uh, throughout? In verse 2, older men are to be self-controlled. In verse, four, verse 5, uh, that younger women are to be self-controlled. In the same way, in verse 6, encourage young men to be self-controlled. He's like, in everything. Right? Why is self-control so important? Well, Proverbs says this. Proverbs 
25, verse 28. A person without self-control is like a city with broken down walls. Now, back in the ancient world, uh, cities would, uh, and, and speaking of Jerusalem and other places, they would have these, these walls to protect where they were so that they weren't um, easily raided to keep out robbers and other nations from uh, taking over them. And if the wall was down, it was open season. They could be attacked easily. And Paul says that's how a person is when they are not practicing self-control. Now, again, Paul is talking to Christians in Crete. And what's the Cretans' problem? Cretans in general lack what? Self-control. Remember, they're lazy, gluttonous. He calls them evil beasts and liars. What is that? Self-control. So Paul is saying the way in which y'all reach this culture is by demonstrating that the power of the gospel, the power of God in you, and by cultivating self-control. Now, self, lacking self-control in a particular area as a Christian, um, it can be dangerous. It's like having a wall that has a gap in it. And that's why if there's an area in your life where you are uh, lacking self-control, we shouldn't be content just be like, that's my area. I'm just never going to be able to have control in that area. No, trust in Jesus. Live in community and, and put, do your best bet to put your best foot forward. Why? Because not having self-control in that area, it can impact your relationships with others. And it can impact your witness for the gospel. Not having self-control in your speech can tear someone down. James says the tongue, though, is the smallest members of the body can set a whole force on fire. We create worlds with our words. So you need to practice self-control. Not having self-control when it comes to drinking is a problem. Christians being drunk and and going to alcohol in order to escape or weed to, to solve, to find joy, to solve your problems is an issue. And so, um, as Paul says, though all things may be uh, possible, not all things are profitable. And so for you, it means uh, staying away from alcohol or making sure that you are not limiting it. And the list goes on, taking care of our body. All these things are important because we can't serve other people if we are lacking habitually self-control in certain areas. Because no matter what the area we're lacking, it is going to impact the way we relate to others and the way we relate to God. Next one. It's another S word. And for some of you, it's a curse word. Uh, And as you were reading and it was being read up there, you thought to yourself, this word is so archaic and so oppressive. I don't know if I can believe what the Bible says. Y'all ready for this word? All right, here we go. Verse five, to be self-controlled, pure, workers at the home, kind and in submission to their husbands. Says it again in verse nine, slaves are to submit to their masters in everything. That word submission is a curse word to some of y'all and it's offensive. 
And the reason why is because you're thinking of submission in a, a worldly manner or you're attributing what people you know have taught about submission and who have taught it in a non-life-giving way. When Paul talks to uh, the older women and tells them to teach the younger women to submit to their husband, to submit means to follow their husband's leadership. He is not calling them uh, to give up themselves, to become a doormat, uh, to not have a voice, and to uh, not display their leadership skills. Every Christian is called to submit. In Ephesians chapter 5, 18 through 31, Paul talks about how the church are members of Christ's body who submit to one another. God has ordained for husbands to be the leader of the household, but being the leader of the household does not mean to be uh, a tyrant. For a Christian to be a leader, the way that they lead is through love. Ephesians chapter 5 says that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church so much so that he was willing to sacrifice his life for her. Paul's vision of the gospel is a vision that was given to him by God. And the mystery is this. Christian marriage reflects the uh, Christ's relationship with his church. And the husband is supposed to be loving his wife and, and, and taking care of her and, 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 and laying his life down for her in such a way that when the world looks at it, they say, that is so selfless. That is so amazing. And in the same way, a wife should be submitting and responding to her husband's leadership in a way that is respectful and reverent. And so this should be this beautiful dance between, uh, between uh, the couple when people look and they see this mutual sac- I'm sacrificing for my wife and she's uh, submitting and following my, my leadership and I'm listening to her desires and, and in tune with her needs and I know her gifts. So there's certain areas that she is more gifted than me and I'm deferring my, my leadership in that area to her and, and, and saying, sweetie, what do you think? What do you recommend us to do? And leading that out. But there's an unhealthy thing that I see in so many and so much church culture where submission is something that is oppressive and it is being taught by insecure men who want to teach submission without modeling Christ's likeness and sacrifice. And that is abusive. God can use a woman to speak into your life. And God should be using your wife to speak into your life regularly. If God could use Balaam's donkey to correct him, God can use his daughter, his queen, blood-bought and redeemed to correct your behind. All right, ran over. Okay. And this is the same thing that we see with slaves and masters. Now, we talked about this in the first time you can go hear, hear that Paul is not here giving an apologetic for slavery, saying that this is the way it should be, but rather he's walking, working in a Greco-Roman uh, 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 
system. Uh, he tells people in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, hey, if you can't avail yourself of freedom, avail yourself of freedom. But essentially what Paul is saying, the way in which uh, you as a, think of this as an employer-employee relationship, um, the way you win over people for Jesus is by being respectable, by working hard, by not undermining or stealing. No matter what situation we are in as Christians, right? We are called to use our God-given voice. We're called to pursue justice. We're called to speak up. We're called to do everything we can to, 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 to right uh, what is wrong. But we're also called within our, our roles um, to, to be those who work for the flourishment of wherever we are. This is what Christ did. While the Cretan way is to lie, is to be uh, slick and, 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 and gluttonous, the Christian way is to cultivate a heart of humility, is to love others. That's what Jesus said. We love our enemies. They ask you to go one mile, you go two miles. You, you win through love. Now, Again, I'm not talking about abuse. When Paul tells wives to submit to their husbands, he's not saying to submit yourself to, to physical or emotional abuse. No, you speak up and you, you get help. But in general, we cultivate a heart of a servant. Now, this may be heavy. You may be overwhelmed. Self-control is a big issue with me, Pastor Jamal. I don't think I can do it in my own strength. And let me tell you something. You're right. The key to living this type of way to cultivating a heart of a servant, to being a teachable, self-control is not done in your own strength. And that's why Paul in verse 11 through 15 points us to God's grace, God's unmerited, undeserved favor. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What is grace? It's God's unearned kindness, undeserved kindness towards us who, as sinners. And here, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Uh, Titus is pointing us to God's grace. And he said, in essence, he's pointing us to Jesus. Jesus is the very incarnation of grace. Jesus Christ appeared, bringing salvation to everyone who would believe. And it's this grace. It's Jesus who instructs us to deny godlessness and worldly lust and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age, in Crete. He says, as you set your affections on Jesus Christ, it is he who trains you. He is your pupil. He is your teacher. Grace is your teacher. Grace enables you to live a, a Christian life, to have victory over your sin. And it may not happen overnight, but if you keep your eyes on Jesus and you keep putting sin to death by looking to him by faith, you will find that victory. He says the grace of God teaches you to do what? It teaches you to say no to ungodliness, no to anger, no to lust, no to cheating, no to self-centeredness, and yes to a better way, a way that leads to joy and flourishing and happiness. The grace of God is shaping you to be the most beautiful version of yourself in Christ Jesus. 
That's why Paul says, practice self-control. Look, verse, so that God's word would not be slandered, so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say. Verse 10, so that they may adorn the teaching of God, our Savior, and everything. We pursue this type of living because it is attractive to people who are dying internally because they don't have a fixed hope and fixed source of life, and we have it. And the way they become attracted to it is when our words and our deeds begin to align more and more. If you can put up uh, the last few verses here, I just want to close out by reading this. Look at this, verse 13. God's grace saves, verse 11. God's grace sanctifies, sanctifies, verse 12. Listen, and God's grace will safely bring us home, verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Paul closes by reminding us of what Jesus did for us. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. We are his people for his possession, and through his grace, we are made to be eager to do good works. This is a beautiful community. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.